When I was 11 years old, I surrendered my life to God, and I did that because I was prompted by the Holy Spirit to do so. I felt the Holy Spirit in me prompting me, nudging me to walk down this aisle and pray a prayer and invite God into my life. And I did it also because I sensed that the people in this little Baptist church where I was at the time, they had God in them in a way that I didn't, and I wanted what they had. My experience is different than a lot of other kids. I did that as 11 years old. A lot of kids made a decision to surrender their life to God because they were scared of hell. In a lot of churches in America for a lot of years, it was common. You heard about hell regularly. Fire, brimstone, weeping, gnashing of teeth. And so a lot of people, a lot of kids surrendered their lives to God not because of something positive, but because they were scared of hell. And let me tell you, as a kid, descriptions of hell are mucho scary, right? Mucho scary. I remember the summer after my sophomore year of college, I had done two years at Wheaton College. I was home working a summer job, and my, my brother, who's two years younger than me, wanted to go to this drama presented by a Baptist church, a different one, in Richmond, Indiana, where we were living at the time. And it was something, I think it was called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. You've heard of it. I had never gone. And so I went. And Brent really wanted to go. I'm like, you, you know, you and I are good. We're good. We're in. We're going to heaven. What do you need to worry about this stuff for? He's like, no, I really want to go. I really want to go. So we show up, and it's this drama put on by this Baptist church. And in one scene, there's this guy on a gurney, and he's like a, a dad, a husband, a middle-aged guy, and he's been in a car accident. And there's all these medical people in full surgical garb, you know, and they wheel him down the center aisle of the church all the way to the stage. And they're like, I need 33 cc's propylene, stat, you know, boom, and they're all doing the thing and throwing things off. And, you know, and you hear a heart monitor over the sound system. Boop, 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 boop. He flatlines. They're like, clear, clear. He doesn't make it. He dies right there on the gurney on the stage. And from the back of the auditorium come three guys all dressed in black with scary masks, prancing around like this, and they've got long fingernails. It was really creepy, especially in a Baptist church. Come on. And they prance all the way, and they grab him off the gurney cart, and he starts screaming like a girl, No! this and it got really quiet i mean you could have heard a pin drop then the lights go full you know power onto the left side of the stage and on the left side of the stage is this old lady in a bed she's got members of her family around her and it's clear that she's dying too and so in between labored breaths she's singing phrases of amazing grace and she dies peacefully. And three people from the back of the auditorium dressed in white, looking really nice, come grab her gently, and they take her to the top part of the stage, and they set her down, and when the lights shine on there, there's all these other people dressed in white, and they're all smiling, and they've got wine glasses. And I'm thinking, this is a Baptist church. <laughs> 
and they look like they're having fun and they're having a good time. I remember thinking at that moment in the middle of that drama, this isn't scary, this is jarring, yes. Scary, no. And there's something wrong with the picture. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, the guy on the, the, guy on the gurney didn't seem like all that bad a guy based on their description they gave of his life. I mean, it seems like being thrown in that box was just kind of cruel. It just struck me that way. And, and I remember thinking that, that maybe, you know, it just struck me as a little unfair. A lot of people in America feel that way about hell. They feel like hell makes God out to be this cruel, you know, draconian, Mount Olympus-type being that's just looking to squash people. Um, and maybe that's why only 40% of Americans believe in hell. Did you know that? Only 4 out of 10. 7 out of 10 Americans believe in heaven. But only four out of ten Americans believe in hell. I get that. Because, you know, maybe Craig Groeschel puts it this way. This is Craig Groeschel's take. He says, he says, you know, if I were the devil, what I would do is I would try and convince everyone there's no hell. Because if, could, could if I could succeed in doing that, two things would happen. One, people could reject Jesus Christ and not worry about it. They could be like, yeah, Jesus, eh, you know, so what? And really go through life and not worry, not care, not think about anything. And he said, the second thing that would happen, if I could convince everybody that hell's not real, is that Christians would kind of be laissez-faire about their spiritual life. They just kind of go through and, oh, you know, it's raining, it's sunny, maybe I'll go to church. Or they'll feel a prompting to talk to a friend and they'll kind of shrug it off and not do anything about it. And, and they'll be kind of laissez-faire. They won't be motivated to talk to anybody about the gospel or about Jesus. I get asked from time to time whether I believe in hell or not. And it's kind of interesting. It's two groups of questioners that question me. The first group are usually brothers and sisters in Christ. And they'll size me up and they'll think, you're in a new church plant. You wear kind of weird clothes sometimes. Um, I bet you probably voted for Obama. I bet you don't believe in hell. I bet you're going to hell, Pastor. And they'll ask me. <laughs> they don't say it outright, but they, they'll ask me because they want to know. And then there's another group of people I run into, and they're the, they haven't darkened the doors of church forever, or it's been a long time. And as they get to know me a little bit, they size me up and they think, well, you know, he seems kind of, you know, he's pretty accepting. I mean, he seems like he might be one of these okay people in life. I bet he's not like the rest of them. So do you believe in hell? And I'll get asked by both groups. And the funny thing is I surprise both sets of questioners by my answer. Personally, personally, here's how I feel about hell. If on judgment day, God announced, you know, you had a line getting ready to go up into heaven, and I'm in that line, and then there's a line getting ready to go into hell, and if God were to stand up and go, hey, um, we're going to get to the judgment in a moment. We're going to take a little break right now. You want to say hi to some people, grab a cup of coffee, da, da, da. <laughs> okay? You can do that. We'll be right back. And if he were to disappear behind like a green curtain or something, you know what I would do in my line? Get over here. Get up. I would let people in front of me in line. I'd be like, get, run, shh, hurry, hurry, get in line in front of me. You know, and there'd probably be some Baptists like, you can't do that. Don't let them in line, you know. <laughs> Like, no, man, God said he'd be back. Come on, get in line. If, if I get to heaven and there's like an orientation thing for pastors 
and priests and rabbis and all, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and Peter shows up, right, because if it's heaven, you know, Peter's the first guy that you meet, according to legend. And, and then he were to stand up and he would go, hey, I uh, want to let you guys in on something. You know all that stuff in the Bible about <clears throat> judgment and hell and all that stuff? Just kidding! <laughs> Everybody gets in, and you probably have a preacher, too, like, what? You know, and they're kicking furniture, and I can't believe, you know. You know how I would feel? Relieved. That's how I personally feel. The problem is, I'm convinced that hell is real because I've read this so many times. And hell is presented with such clarity and judgment is presented with such clarity in the Bible that I just can't escape the, conv the conviction that what the Bible teaches about hell and what Jesus says about hell is real. Um, I'm convinced that six out of ten Americans, that group over here, are actually wrong in what they think about hell. Most Americans don't believe in hell, and most Americans don't understand hell. Uh, in fact, a couple of years ago, a fellow wrote a book called Love Wins, and it was his attempt to talk about hell. I went to the same school that he went to. I w sat in the same Old Testament classes, the same New Testament classes. I heard the same biblical scholars. And you can't write off the doctrine of hell without cutting out huge sections of the Bible. And you can't write off the doctrine of hell without rejecting Jesus. Why would I say that? Jesus, it's estimated Jesus spent 13% of his teaching. He devoted 13% of his teachings to hell. That means if Jesus were the teaching pastor of Generations Community Church, do you know how many sermons he would deliver on hell this year? Five. I've been at this eight years. Do you know how many sermons I've delivered on hell? Zero. I, some of us might be tempted to pull Jesus aside if you were to try that and go, hey, Jesus, don't, no, don't, let's, you know, talk about something else and lose Peter and John, get a really good band. <laughs> okay? So not only did Jesus devote 13% of his teaching to hell, 50% of his teaching is about judgment. If you don't believe me, go home this afternoon and read Matthew cover to cover, and every time you run across a passage where Jesus is talking about judging, and separating wheat and chaff and fire and stuff like that. Just put a star. And when you get to the end of Matthew, go back and count how many stars you have. I guarantee you'll be surprised. You'll be like, what in the world? How is that in the Bible? Um, today we're going to look at just one passage out of many where Jesus talks about hell. And it's Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. That's where we're going to be today. And I'm going to read the entire section, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to kind of really look at it piece by piece, step by step. All right, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 and following. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. There, in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, Remember that during your lifetime, you had everything, everything you wanted. 
Lazarus had nothing. So now he is being here, comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross to you from here, and no one can cross over to us from there. And then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. But the rich man replied, No, no, Father Abraham, if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. So let's, let's unpack this passage, all right? Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man. This is a classic Jesus parable. Parables start with phrases like, there was a certain rich man. There was a man who had two sons. There was a farmer who had a great harvest. This is a story. He's telling a story. Parables are stories that illustrate truth so that someone who's hearing the story, who is filled with the Spirit, who has ears to hear, as Jesus would say, hears the story and goes, boy, that's true. Yep, that's the truth. Okay? So this is a story meant to illustrate a truth. There was a certain rich man, and if we could get these verses up as I'm going through them, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. Purple, if you'll remember from two or three sermons ago in the Roman world, was a sign that you were rich. And among the higher echelons of society, only the highest of the high could wear purple. And he wore purple every day. He wore his finest garments every day. He had enough fine garments to be cycling through daily. That's the kind of lifestyle that he had. Uh, and so, because purple cloth was so uh, expensive, and because Jesus puts it this way, you need to understand that this particular rich man wasn't, in our terms, just getting six figures a year. He's Bill Gates wealthy. He's Oprah wealthy. He's Warren Buffett wealthy. He's got a lot of money. And that's what we're here to see. Now, the key in understanding this passage, in some ways, is to know who's he talking to. And Luke gives us a hint. Luke tells us outright. It's in verse 14, and I'm going to read it to you. The Pharisees, who dearly loved their money, heard all this and scoffed at Jesus, and he said to them. So he's talking to Pharisees. Pharisees of the first century, if you remember, they're the God squad. They're the people who've got their theological P's and Q's all in order. They believe the right things. They do the right things. They go to synagogue when you should be at synagogue. They pray the way you're supposed to pray. They're the examples that you should follow when it comes to living a life that supposedly pleases God. The Pharisees knew in the way that they thought that if you had a lot of money, it meant you were blessed by God. So as Jesus is telling this story, and he says, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. The Pharisees hearing this, you know what they're thinking to themselves? Blessed, blessed. That guy is blessed by God. What a blessed man that is. And then he goes on. Jesus says, verse 20, at the rich man's gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there, longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Lazarus is living in extreme poverty. Lazarus has nothing. 
And again, the Pharisees hearing this would, would conclude, man, his sins must have been huge to be absolutely in poverty and to have legions. The, the Greek makes it clear that these are open, oozing legions all over his body. I know, everybody all at once. Ew, that's gross. Oozing legions all over his body. The Greek makes it even clearer. It's not that Lazarus lay at the gate. Lazarus was laid daily at the gate. In other words, somebody cared enough about Lazarus that every day they plopped him at the gate of this rich man's house. Not at the temple where all the other beggars and lame and, and whatnot were begging and trying to get money. But here at this rich man's house where there's not a lot of other people begging. Maybe he'll get something, right? So he was laid there. That tells us that this man, Lazarus, is crippled. In some way, he can't walk. He can't move on his own. He had to be laid at the gate of this rich man. And so, uh, verse 21, As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. There's a couple of things that I think are helpful to know. One has to do with this crumbs. You'll hear about crumbs from the table in the Bible. You'll, 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 you'll come across it. Here's what went on. Back then in the ancient world, they didn't have forks and knives and spoons. They ate like they were from Kentucky. <laughs> they put their hand, they ate with their hands. Didn't matter if there was tons of olive oil or if it was kind of fluids in there. They just plopped it in, put it in their mouths. And if you do that and you've got olive oil and all kinds of messy stuff, what happens to your hands? They're all gross. Oh, by the way, they didn't have napkins back then either. So... What you would do if you were wealthy is that you would have extra bread at the table. And guests would break the pieces of bread up, and you would rub the bread all over your hands like this, and then with the crumbs, the crumbs would go underneath the table. And that's where the whole idea of crumbs comes from. And so the rich man, even though he had crumbs from under the table, did he give any to Lazarus? No. He gave nothing to Lazarus, the text tells us. Well, then, now we're going to get to the most controversial part of today's message. Some of you could be so upset, like, I mean, you might ever, not ever love Jesus again, but it's right here in the Bible, I'm telling you. It shows how evil dogs really are. So, cat lovers, I want you to know, God's got your back. If you're a dog lover here today, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, okay? So, what, what is this stuff about dogs? I always used to think that when I read that as a kid that um, it meant that the dogs were comforting Lazarus. No. If you know anything about the ancient world, dogs were not pets back then. Dogs were uh, dirty, diseased, and they were scavengers. Dogs were not something that were clean, that were helpful, that, that we think of when we think of pets today. And so here you have this diseased man with uh, open legions, oozing and the dogs coming and licking him is actually causing pain and causing him harm and i wouldn't have been i wouldn't be surprised if there was some chewing involved as well right this man at the gate of the rich man's house is being tormented he's getting nothing from the rich man and the dogs are making it worse so the pharisees listening to this they're totally tracking with what jesus is saying Rich guy, totally blessed by God, some absolute idiot who must have done something horrible to displease God to be not only in poverty, but to be tortured like that. Clearly, his sins were great. And then comes the kicker. 
Finally, verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham? The Pharisees hearing this immediately, their ears would have been perked up. They would have been, what? No, 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 Jesus, you got the story wrong. You got it wrong. Go back up, back up. That's not how this works. Oh, it gets worse. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. He doesn't even get a funeral. There's no mention of a burial. Because he was that poor, do you know what would have happened to him? His body would have been taken to Gehenna, and it would have been thrown into the garbage where they had fires that burned, because that's what happened to criminals and beggars and poor people. They were not buried. They were not buried with respect. They were dumped in a burning dump for their bodies to burn. Okay? What happened to the rich man? The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. The word used here is Hades, and it's interchangeable with the word hell. Those words are interchangeable. And so when you read an English Bible, you'll read the word hell, and hell can be translated from this word, Hades. All right? This is a great reversal. The rich man who is inside in life, and you had a poor man who is outside in life. In death, the rich man is outside, the poor man's inside. In life, the rich man had food, the poor man had nothing. In death, the rich man had nothing, the poor man had everything. In life, the rich man had no needs. In, in life, the poor man had great need. In death, the rich man had great need. In death, the poor man had needed nothing. I mean, you, we could go on and on in these compare. I mean, it's... This is a huge, huge reversal. In life, the rich man offered no help. In death, the poor man could offer no help. Huge, huge reversal. So the rich man is in Hades. And in Hades, in the New Testament, this is the abode of the dead, the abode of the damned. This is not a place that believers go in the Bible. Believers don't go to Hades. Believers don't go to hell in the Bible. Never do you see believers going there. And this word, again, is used interchangeably with hell. It's described many different ways. A fiery furnace, a burning sulfur, weeping, outer darkness, isolation, gnashing of teeth. I always used to think that the gnashing of teeth part was um, because they were in so much pain. But actually, if you look at where it's used in other places in the Bible, the gnashing teeth is when you're really angry. Arr, that kind of gnashing teeth. Okay? So you have Lazarus and the rich man, and they're in the afterlife. Both men are fully conscious of where they are. Verses 24 and following. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. So what's that dipping the finger all about? Well, in, in hell, in Hades, there's no water. There's no rivers. There's no cisterns. I don't take this stuff literally. You can if you want, but if you're looking at it even figuratively or metaphorically, what you get is there's no relief for what's going on. What's going on is bad, and there's no relief from the bad that's going on. There's no escape either. Uh, Abraham says this, uh, Besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over from you to here, and no one can cross over to us to there. So, because of the chasm, if you're in hell, you can't get to heaven. And if you're in heaven, you can't get to hell. It's permanent. It's fixed. It's unchanging. Well, the rich man has one more request, verse 27. 
the rich man says this, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. You've got to give the guy credit. At least he cares for his family, right? And I'm thinking that in the context of this story, the rich man knows. He knows. He knows his brothers think the same way he does and that his brothers are on the same path that he was on and his brothers are going to end up precisely where he ended up and he doesn't want that. So what does Abraham say to him at the very end? And this is the kicker. Um, but Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. Let me ask you, generations, who rose from the dead? Jesus. Interestingly, about a week before Jesus was nailed on a cross, Jesus raised a man from the dead who ironically had the name Lazarus. And the Pharisees who were hearing this story also witnessed and heard about the raising of Lazarus, the man from Bethany who was dead four days and who was brought back to life because of Jesus. And when they heard about it and when it was confirmed, did they believe? No, the Bible tells us that when they heard and when they verified that this man was raised from the dead, that's when they decided that they were going to execute Jesus. It did not result in belief. It resulted in rejection of God's Son. Why would Jesus tell this story? To warn. To warn. To warn religious people so they would repent and believe. If you knew something was terrible was going to happen to somebody you cared about, wouldn't you say something? Of course you would. Love, warning them is the loving thing to do. And that's probably why half of what Jesus has to say is about judgment. Jesus, the man who didn't come to condemn the world but save it, Jesus, the man who's taught that you shouldn't judge lest you be judged, knows that he himself is the ultimate judge. And he knows there is judgment coming. And because he is loving and compassionate, he warns. Because he's a loving and compassionate judge. Who did Jesus warn the most about hell in the Bible? Do you know who it is? It's the Pharisees. It's the religious people that Jesus spends time warning. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the people whose lives are in complete disarray and who know they have nothing to offer God. He offers them forgiveness and a fresh start. The people who think, I'm okay. Yeah. I'm okay, and pff, for crying out loud, I'm not a drug addict. I'm not, it's not like I'm a porn producer or anything. I'm certainly better than my neighbors. Have you heard them fight? I mean, come on. The people who think they have it all together are the people who should be concerned according to Jesus. So let me ask you some questions, Team Generations. And the first question is directed for those of you who are believers. You made a decision. You said yes to what God had done. Do you really believe in hell? I've been asking myself this. I mean, do I really believe in hell? Do I believe that hell is real? I mean, if I really was convinced that hell was a legitimate option of two options in the afterlife, wouldn't it have an effect on my conversations with people? 
wouldn't it have an effect on how often I prayed for somebody that truly is lost? Wouldn't it affect, if I had been saved from something that horrible, wouldn't my gratitude for the man who saved me drive me to give more than just a few Sundays a year or a few dollars here and there? Wouldn't I want to be plying and investing my life to the man who totally gave me life? So the first question is, do you really believe in hell? Now, if you're here today and you're not a believer, or you would consider yourself lost or wandering or whatever that is, if you feel God drawing you now, let me tell you, that's if you feel this urging, prompting on the inside, you know what that is? It's the Holy Spirit going, yes, mm-hmm. yes. Surrender your life. That's all it is. The beautiful thing about Jesus, the beautiful thing about what God has done through Jesus is that, see, all the other religions are about this sliding scale, being better, being good enough, da-da-da-da. Christianity and the gospel is all about the fact that you've got nothing to offer God, just like the prostitute, just like the tax collector, just like the other people that Jesus encounters in the New Testament. They had nothing, and they realized they had nothing. The two people in the temple that came in to pray the prayer, the Pharisee who said, Oh God, I thank you that I'm not like that man. And the tax collector who came in and who said, I've got nothing and couldn't even look up to heaven. Who does just Jesus say walked away right with God? The tax collector. <gasps> Scandalous. You know what that tells me? Hell is going to have a lot of religious people in it. That's what it tells me. And so, if you're here today and you're lost, here's the good news. It's not anything you can do. There is nothing you can do. That's the good news. Jesus did it for you. By dying the death that you deserve, he paid the debt that was owed to God. And when, when the Bible talks about saving faith, it's talking about the fact that you've gotten to a point in your life where when it comes to God, you're not doing the sliding scale thing anymore. You're not trying to justify yourself. You're not trying to convince God or convince yourself that you're good enough. You're not trying to appeal to your church attendance or what you give or what you do. And in your interfacing with God, you know, I got nothing. Don't look at me. Don't look at my life. Look at Jesus. Look at what he did. He's the only hope I've got. That's saving faith right there, putting your confidence in what Jesus did. People talk about it as being a decision or getting saved. They're all talking about the same thing. At that moment, God's Spirit comes inside of you and you're forgiven. And when you breathe your last breath, you go where Lazarus went. In the presence of the Father of all who believe, Abraham, and in the presence of God himself.